Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight's story is one where so much has changed in true crime since the Victorian era, but so much has also stayed exactly the same. You'll see what I mean. This is the story of Getter's Island. But first, a Victorian society tip. Spring is in full swing here in the northeastern U.S., The weather has finally started to warm up, and do you know what that means? It means it's time to promenade. Victorians use the word promenade as both a noun and a verb. As a noun, a promenade was a place meant for walking. It could mean a park, a pier, or a town square. To promenade was another matter altogether. Promenading was a pastime pretty much reserved for the upper crust of society. Its purpose is to see and be seen. It was especially important for young bachelors and eligible young ladies. But, of course, there are rules. Let me share some of them with you now. First off, we have to get dressed. As usual, there are much lengthier rules for women than there are for men. For the ladies, this should be plain, tailor-made is the best, walking length and of good material. Fussy style should not be chosen for streetwear, and the hat or bonnet should be rather plain and harmonized with the gown. Further, the dress for the promenade should be in perfect harmony with itself. All the colors worn should harmonize if they are not strictly identical. The bonnet should not be of one color and the parasol of another, the dress of a third, and the gloves of a fourth. Nor should one article be new and another be shabby. The collars and cuffs should be of lace. The kid gloves should be selected to harmonize with the color of the dress, a perfect fit. The jewelry worn should be bracelets, cuff buttons, plain gold earrings, a watch chain, and brooch. Promenade was one place a young married woman or widows were permitted to stroll with men who were not their husband, provided it is, quote, always with men of good morals, and that they take care to avoid every appearance of coquetry. Unmarried women, however, were expected to have a chaperone along. Now, for an unmarried woman, the point of promenading was essentially to put oneself on display. Unfortunately, the problem with promenading was that you put yourself on display. For this reason, it's important for a young married woman to, quote, not turn her head on one side and the other, especially in large towns, where this bad habit seems to be an invitation to the impertinent. Now, we all know the impertinent are going to impert. So, rule state, if such a person's address her, she should take care not to answer them a word. If they persist, she should tell them in a brief and firm, though polite tone, that she desires to be left to herself. If a man follow her in silence, she should pretend not to perceive him and at the same time hasten a little her step. Now, suppose you see someone you do want to speak with while you're promenading. The lady is given the privilege of first recognition, as it's called. If a man were to initiate a conversation with a woman first, they, quote, run the risk of seriously offending the lady they are most anxious to please and of bringing down on themselves the just indignation of the lady's male relatives. Other guidance for ladies states, she affects none of the ungraceful idiotic gates such as some unknown authority occasionally pronounces fashionable. She does not giggle, nor laugh, nor speak loudly, nor rush frantically up to her friends and kiss them at meeting or parting. She remembers that the cold, critical world is looking on, and that which would be perfectly fitting in her own drawing room or on a sequestered country road is not proper on the pavements of a crowded city street. Additionally, when crossing the pavement, a lady should raise her dress with the right hand a little about the ankle. To raise a dress with both hands is vulgar and can only be excused when the mud is very deep. Gentlemen also have a long list of rules to follow, including never picks the teeth nor scratches the head, never swears nor talks uproariously, never smokes or spits upon the walk to the exceeding annoyance of those who are always disgusted with tobacco in any shape, 
never stares at anyone, man or woman, in a marked manner, never scans a lady's dress impertinently and makes no rude remarks about her, never loses temper nor attracts attention by excited conversation. Now, one last roll and you're about to be ready to take your first spin around the promenade. Two ladies may, without any impropriety, take each one arm of a single cavalier, but one lady cannot, with either grace nor the sanction of custom, take the arms of two gentlemen at the same time. Now, as many promenades were circular, you're likely to encounter the same acquaintances more than once. Now what do you do? Don't fret, someone wrote down for you what to do in that situation too. On meeting acquaintances repeatedly in the same promenade, etiquette only requires the ladies or gentlemen to bow once. Happy promenade season, friends. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. This story takes place in 1833 in Easton, Pennsylvania. Easton is about an hour and a half drive north of Philadelphia and is situated where the Lehigh River joins the Delaware River. Unfortunately, we have very little background on those involved in tonight's story, so we're just going to go ahead and get right into things. The first character is a man named Charles Getter. Charles is a farmhand who works for a local family in Easton. Charles, apparently, had a couple of girlfriends. One is Mary Hummer, who reportedly lived in the Mount Bethel area of Pennsylvania. This is a town that's only about 30 minutes driving distance from Easton today, but back in 1833, it was probably nearly a day's worth of travel to get there. Now, some sources make it sound like they were actively courting and maybe even engaged to be married. Other sources, though, make it sound like his relationship with Mary was pretty much all in his head, or at least that he admired her from afar and Mary actually barely knew who he was. The other woman in Charles's life is also from the city of Easton, and her name is Margaret Rebecca Lowell. At least I think that's what her name was. Some sources call her Margaret, others Rebecca, others say Margaret, also known as Rebecca. For our purposes, I'm going to call her Rebecca. There's no mention of it, but I'm going to assume Rebecca is also a member of the working class like Charles, either a domestic servant, factory worker, or just worked on her family farm. So Charles may or may not have had a real-life relationship with Mary, It may just all be wishful thinking, but his relationship with Rebecca is very real because she reportedly winds up pregnant and she names Charles as the father. During this time, if a woman becomes pregnant out of wedlock, there was immense societal pressure to be married. This is where the term shotgun wedding was coined. Fathers were said to literally threaten or hold a shotgun on these men to make them marry their daughters as to not disgrace their families. So Rebecca reveals that she's pregnant and we don't really know the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy. Could have been consensual. Victorians also used the term seduced a lot, meaning the man made false promises at the time as a means to coerce a woman into sleeping with him, or sometimes they use the term for outright cases of rape. Unfortunately, it usually becomes a battle of he said, she said, where public opinion often sides with whoever has the better reputation in the community. There were no paternity tests back then. But what was usually agreed upon is that the woman couldn't be an unwed mother. She'd have to be married. And in this case, pressure from the community is coming down on Charles Getter to marry Rebecca Lowell, even though neither of them want that. Charles denies having anything to do with Rebecca and says he's in a relationship with Mary Hummer and he won't marry anyone but her. Charles, though, is summoned to appear before the Justice of the Peace, who tells him he'll marry Rebecca or he'll be thrown in jail. 
I tried hard to find if there were any actual laws that applied at the time to men who got women pregnant. Like, was there a literal law that a man had to marry a woman he got pregnant? I'm assuming there must have been because he did get brought before the justice of the peace, and the marriage did happen. Now, the ink was barely dry on the marriage license before Charles was inquiring about a divorce. Nowadays, we're free to marry and divorce as we please. But in the 19th century, you needed a very good reason for a divorce, and irreconcilable differences was not it. In this case, Charles stated that his grounds for asking for a divorce was that his wife had been unfaithful because, as he keeps reiterating, that is not his baby she's carrying. As an interesting aside, clearly local public opinion and court sided with Rebecca in this case, but Charles is not wrong. They can't prove it's his baby. I mentioned earlier there was no paternity test back then, obviously, though one method used by midwives was reporting any man's name the woman called out during childbirth. The logic being that anything said during the throes of labor couldn't possibly be a lie, and that man was most certainly the father. So back to Charles's request for a divorce. It didn't get him very far. I don't know why he was surprised when the same court that just forced him to marry Rebecca would be the same one to grant him divorce, but he got pissed. And he started talking all over town. He apparently told several people that he, quote, would have Mary Hummer if he had to walk over pins to get her. He said he would be clear of his wife in less than three weeks. To someone else, he said he'd be rid of her in one week and went so far as to express that he wished she was dead. As of yet, the couple have made no plans to live together, obviously. Both continued living at their separate residences. But about 10 days after their nuptials, Charles asked Rebecca to meet him. Now, that's her husband. She has to go. So she meets him on the road near her house in the evening. The couple turn up at a neighbor's house a short distance away where Rebecca goes inside and visits with the family for about 15 minutes. Charles remained outside, but apparently Rebecca reported that she and Charles were going to try and make things work as she would be preparing to move out of her current residence and in with him in the coming days. The next morning, Rebecca is found dead a little ways off the road in a field, apparently strangled to death. The Gettysburg Adam Sentinel reported she'd been discovered, quote, lying on the back, the comb crushed to pieces, hair disheveled, eyes and tongue partially protruded, face livid, and the indentation of a thumb of a right hand in the throat and the fingers of a right hand in the back of the neck. I often talk about how so much in true crime has changed since the Victorian era, yet so much is still the same as well. And this is an example of things staying the same. Without an in-depth investigation, I'm going to go ahead and say the husband did it. And that's what officials in 1833 said as well. They went to get Charles Getter, who was waking up for work, and when he was informed that his wife had been murdered and he was suspected of her murder, he rather emotionlessly replied, is she dead? I've not seen her since the day before yesterday. Charles tried to deny the charges, saying he was elsewhere at the time of the murder. But he had motive, which he had not held back in spreading all over town. And they had a witness who claimed they saw him on the same road only the night before where Rebecca was found. So after the jury deliberated for only 10 minutes, they found Charles Getter guilty of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced to hang. Executions at the time were held publicly in the town square in Easton. But based on the crowds that had been coming into town since the discovery of Rebecca's body, they just didn't think the square would hold the crowds anticipated for the execution. So, not far from the square, lies the Delaware River. And in the middle of the river is a roughly six-acre island known as Abel's Island. The island was named for Jacob Abel, who was one of five men the island was deeded to. 
All five were prominent wealthy businessmen in the area, and it's likely they had plans of developing the island for some sort of industry, likely a gristmill business of some sort. But that was back in 1787, and no plans had ever come to fruition, and the island sat empty. Town officials thought, why not carry out the execution safely on the island where the river banks across from the island would provide ample room for viewing the execution? In the days leading up to this execution, it's reported that Charles Getter did make a full confession. Details were printed and distributed, only serving to increase the crowds drawn to the city of Easton. The Allentown Democrat later reported that, quote, Easton was crowded with strangers, many of them coming hundreds of miles to witness the execution. Not a bed was to be had in Easton the evening before, nor stabling for a horse. Crowds numbering nearly 20,000 people flooded into the city for this. This event is pulling arena venue level crowds. So Charles chose to walk from the courthouse and cross the river to the island on what was described as a bridge of boats. Now, as public hangings go, those hoping for a morbid show definitely got one. Instead of mounting a gallows platform and being dropped, Charles requested a method of hanging called the draw-up. This is where one end of the rope would be placed around his neck while he stood on the ground, and the other would be strung over a high beam where a heavy weight would be suspended from the other end. When the rope holding the weight was cut, Charles would be drawn up off the ground into the air and hung. I've never actually heard of this method before, and we're about to find out why it wasn't the preferred method of execution at the time. So nearly 20,000 people line the riverbanks. The mood is somewhat jovial. Officials get Charles situated, and it's time for the execution. The rope holding the weight is cut. It falls, and Charles is yanked up off the ground by the neck. And then he crashes back down. The rope broke. Charles looks around, stunned, and literally says, well, that was good for nothing. They stand him up, brush him off, and there is no spare rope. They have to send someone back to town to get one. It takes about 20 minutes. During the time, Charles complained that he'd injured his arm in the fall and asked jailers to adjust his collar to cover the rope burns he now has on his neck. So, someone returns with a new rope, they re-rig the weight, and they're ready to try again. This time, the rope holds. Charles is yanked into the air where it takes several moments for him to strangle to death. The sentence has been carried out. Crowds disperse, things go back to normal. One reporter, though, was so horrified by the entire process and the crowd's ambivalence or apathy at the execution that he called on lawmakers to ban public executions altogether. And it worked. In April of 1834, Governor George Wolfe signed a law banning public executions, making Charles Getters the last public execution to be carried out in Pennsylvania. An article written sometime in 2021 states part of the rope is on display by the Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society at the Sigil Museum in Easton. I'm unsure if it's the rope that broke or the one that did the job. Also unsure if it's still actually on display, but I thought that was interesting to note that it was preserved. So after the execution, the island that I mentioned was actually named Abel's Island became colloquially known as Getter's Island. The island was eventually purchased by a lumber company that built a sawmill on the island. A dam at one end of the island provided a popular swimming hole during the summer months. And in the winter, blocks of ice would be cut from the river and stored in an ice house on the island since modern refrigeration wouldn't be invented until about the 1920s. In the 1940s, the lumber company sold the island to a local doctor who had a 100-foot suspension bridge to the island built and created a small amusement park that he named Tropical Island. Ice on the river destroyed the bridge, and the island again was abandoned and reclaimed by nature. Rumor has it that the island is haunted by the ghost of Charles Getter to this day. 
Reports of a man yelling from the island in the night have been made, as well as witnessing someone carrying a lantern on its shores. Sounds to me like those claims could in fact be very real people, but one way to find out for sure is to buy the island. That's right, the island is privately owned and it's up for sale. I will link to the Zillow listing where as of April 22nd, it is listed for sale at $175,000. What would you do with it? Your own haunted island, hmm? If you head over to Instagram at a goodnight for a murder, you can let me know there. Plus, see some photos of the island itself. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is a bit of a dive into why Victorians attended public executions. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit a goodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at a goodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. episode 24 about Getters Island, I'm going to tell you about why Victorians seemed so enamored with attending public executions. Capital punishment predates the Victorian era by centuries. It's been around for probably the entirety of human civilization. So far as the Victorian history of the death penalty, though, the UK would uphold the death penalty for nearly 220 different offenses until about 1861, when it was pared back to apply to only six crimes. These included murder, arson in a royal dockyard, espionage, piracy with violence, treason, and a select number of military offenses. The Capital Punishment Amendment Act of 1868...